Warning, the following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. Take it in. Just take it all in. It's definitely a different vibe than all the other parks we've ever been to in the city. That's because Washington Square Park is different from all the other parks. This was the center of the anti-war and civil rights and hippie movements of the 60s. This is where the modern social revolution movements gathered and marched to change the world. I mean, a little preachy, but very inspiring. My point is, as small and simple as it is, this place has played a vital role in changing and shaping society and this city. Kind of like the show we're seeing tonight. I was waiting for you to draw the lines between the two. Clever. Very clever. to Stage Whisper. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez. Today we're going to be discussing the landmark show, Hair. So hurry and take your seats. It looks like the show is starting. Hello, everyone. Welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. We checked and the moon is in the seventh house. And also, Jupiter has aligned with Mars. So that can only mean one thing. The time has come for us to finally discuss the historical show, Hair. This show rocked the Broadway theater to its core and forever changed what the musical was. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. First, we have a lot of ground to cover, so let's get into it. The show was conceived and written by two actors, James Rado and Jerome Ragney, in 1964 when they performed in an off-Broadway show together. The main characters were autobiographical of the two, with Rado's Claude being a pensive romantic and Ragney's Burger being an extrovert. The relationship was close, and the toxic turn that it took was reflected in the music. Rado said that his inspiration came from some combination of the characters he had met in the streets and people the two knew. There was really a group of kids in the East Village that were dropping out and dodging the draft. Rado talks about how there was so much excitement in the streets and parks that they wanted to transmit that excitement to the stage. These hippie areas were full of kids growing out their hair and beans were being held all over. Rado was quoted saying, it was very important historically and if we hadn't written it, there'd not be any examples. You could read about it, but there'd not be any examples. You could read about it, but you'd never experience it. Rado was more of a traditional Broadway artist, and Ragney 
was more of an off-Broadway off type. He was a member of the open theater that was developing experimental theater te techniques. He employed a lot of the same improvisational exercises in the development of hair. McDermott was brought in as a Grammy Award winner to write the music. He was a strong contrast to the pair. He had a short hair, a wife, and kids living on Staten Island. He shared their excitement for a rock and roll show. He preferred that they work independently. Ragney and Rado handed him the material, and he went to work to set it to music. It took him three weeks to write the, mu the first draft of the score. The show debuted on October 17th, 1967 at the Public Theater. While the theater was still under construction, the musical was the first work by living authors that Pat produced. The theater was right in the neighborhood of the East Village. That led to some confusion in the rehearsal and casting process. The traditional staff of the theater found the work to be incomprehensible. The first dress was a disaster. After some work and help from the artistic director for the public, Gerard Freeman, the show opened to audiences who received it tepidly. With the help of businessman-turned-producer Michael Butler, the show would run for 45 performances at a discotheque called The Cheetah after it closed at the public. The show, while at the public, helped inspire Butler towards an anti-war platform to run on for the U.S. Senate race. There was no nudity in the show prior to running on Broadway, but in the three months between closing at the Cheetah and opening at the Biltmore, the show went through a massive change. The plot was loosened to make it more realistic. Thirteen songs were added, and director Tom O'Horgan was brought in to enhance the impact of the show. Tom O'Horgan had made his reputation at the La Mama Experimental Theater Club and brought a bombardment of sensory overload to his direction. He brought in Julie Arenal to choreograph, and after witnessing a protest in Central Park where the participants stripped naked in an expression of freedom, the act was brought into the show. Ultimately, Pap declined to produce the Broadway production, so Butler produced it on his own. The Netherlanders, the Schuberts, and other theater owners declined hosting the production because it was too controversial. Butler, however, had family connections to the Biltmore Theater and was able to get them to agree to the show. The musical first opened on Broadway on April 29, 1968 at the Biltmore Theater. It ran on Broadway for 1,750 performances, closing on July 2, 1972. We're going to mainly focus on the 2009 revival that opened at the Al Hirschfeld Theater on March 31st, 2009, and ran for 519 performances, closing on June 27th, 2010. Prior to the 2009 revival, the show had been revisited in 1977 at the same theater, but was a flop, playing only 43 performances. The most recent revival which is one we will mainly be focusing on on this episode, was a much bigger success. The design team for the show is as followed. The music was by Galt McDermott, book and lyrics by Jerome Ragney and James Rado, direction by Diana Paulus, choreography by Carol Armitage. 
set by Scott Pask, costume designs by Michael McDonald, lighting design by Kevin Adams, sound design by Acme Sound Partners, wig design by Gerald Kelly. The show would be nominated for a stellar eight Tony Awards. It would march away that night with the award for Best Musical Revival. So let's dive into the story itself. The show starts with Claude, the nominal leader of the tribe, sitting center stage as the tribe mingles with the audience. Tribe member Sheila, an NYU student and determined political activist, and Berger, a irreverent free spirit, cut a lock of Claude's hair and burn it in a receptacle. Afterwards, the tribe converges in slow motion toward the stage through the audience and begin their celebration as children of the age of Aquarius. Berger removes his trousers to reveal a loincloth. Interacting with the audience, he introduces himself as a psychedelic teddy bear and reveals that he is looking for my Donna. The tribe recites a list of pharmaceuticals, legal and illegal. Woof, a gentle soul, extols several sexual practices and says, I grow things. He loves plants, his family, and the audience, telling the audience, we are all one. Hud, a militant African-American, is carried in upside down on a pole. He declares himself President of the United States of Love. In a fake English accent, Claude says that he is the most beautiful beast in the forest from Manchester, England. A tribe member reminds him that he's really from Flushing, New York. Hud, Wolf, and Berger declare what color they are, while Claude says that he's invisible. The tribe recites a list of things they lack. Four African-American tribe members recite street signs in symbolic sequence. Sheila is carried on stage and leads the tribe in a protest chant. Jeannie, an eccentric young woman, appears wearing a gas mask, uh, satiring, or satirizing pollution. She is pregnant and in love with Claude, although she wishes it was Claude's baby, she was knocked up by some crazy speed freak. The tribe linked together LBJ, FBI, CIA, and LSD. Six members of the tribe appear dressed as Claude's parents, berating him for his various transgressions. He does not have a job, and he collects mountains of paper, uh, clippings, and notes. They say that they will not give him any more money and the army will make a man out of you, presenting him with his draft notice. In defiance, Claude leads the tribe in celebrating their vitality. After handing out imaginary pills to the tribe members, saying the pills are for high-profile people such as Richard Nixon, the Pope, and Alabama Wallace, Berger relates how he was expelled from high school. Three tribe members dress up as principals in Hitler mustaches and swastika armbands, mocking the American education system. Berger and the tribe defy them, singing Going Down. Claude returns from his draft board physical, which he passed. He pretends to burn his Vietnam War draft card, which Berger reveals as a library card. 
Claude agonizes about what to do about being drafted. Two tribe members dressed as tourists come down the aisle to ask the tribe why they have such long hair. In answer, Claude and Berger lead the tribe in explaining the significance of their locks. The woman states that kids should be free, no guilt, and should do whatever you want just as long as you don't hurt anyone. She observes that long hair is natural, like the elegant plumage of male birds. She opens her coat to reveal that she is a man in drag. As the couple leaves, the tribe calls her Margaret Mead. Sheila gives Berger a yellow shirt. He goofs around and ends up tearing it in two. Sheila voices her distress that Berger seems to care more about the bleeding crowd than about her. Jeannie summarizes everyone's romantic entanglements. I'm hung up on Claude. Sheila's hung up on Berger. Berger, Berger's hung up everywhere. Claude is hung up on a cross over Sheila and Berger. Berger, Woof, and other tribe members pay satiric tribute to the American flag as they fold it. The tribe runs out to the audience, inviting them to a be-in. After young and innocent Chrissy describes Frank Mills, a boy she's looking for, the tribe participates in the be-in. The men of the tribe burn their draft cards. Claude puts his card in the fire, then changes his mind and pulls it out. He asks, where is the something, where is the someone that tells me why I live and die? The tribe emerges naked, intoning beads, flower, freedom, happiness. Act two starts with four tribe members having the electric blues. After a blackout, the tribe enters worshiping in an attempt to summon Claude. Claude returns from the induction center and tribe members act out an imagined conversation with Claude's draft interview, with HUD saying, the draft is white people sending black people to make war on the yellow people to defend the land they stole from the red people. Claude gives Woof a Mick Jagger poster and Wolf is excited about the gift, as he has said he's hung up on Jagger. Three white women of the tribe tell why they like black boys, and three black women of the tribe dressed like the Supremes explain why they like white boys. Berger gives a joint to Claude that is laced with a hallucinogen. Claude starts the trip as the tribe acts out his visions. He hallucinates that he is skydiving from a plane into the jungles of Vietnam. Berger appears as General George Washington and is told to retreat because of an Indian attack. The Indians shoot all of Washington's men. General Ulysses S. Grant appears and begins a roll call. Abraham Lincoln, played by black female tribe member, John Wilkes Booth, Calvin Coolidge, Clark Gable, Scarlett O'Hara, Aretha Franklin, Colonel George Custer, Claude Bukowski, is called in the roll call, but Clark Gable says he couldn't make it. They all dance a minuet until three African witch doctors kill them. All except for Abraham Lincoln, who says, I'm one of you. Lincoln, after the three Africans sing his praises, recites an alternate version of the Gettysburg Address. Booth shoots Lincoln, but Lincoln says to him, Shit, I'm not dying for no white man. As the visions continue, four Buddhist monks enter. One monk pours a can of gasoline over another monk, who is set on fire and runs off screaming. Three Catholic nuns strangle the three remaining Buddhist monks. 
Three astronauts shoot the nuns with ray guns. Three Chinese people stab the astronauts with knives. Three Native Americans kill the Chinese with bows and tomahawks. Three Green Berets kill the Native Americans with machine guns and then kill each other. A sergeant and two parents appear holding a suit on a hanger. The parents talk to the suit as if it's their son and they're very proud of him. The bodies rise and play like children. The play escalates to violence until they are all dead again. They rise again and comment about the casualties in Vietnam. It's a dirty little war. At the end of the trip sequence, two tribe members sing over the dead bodies a Shakespeare speech about the nobility of man set to music. After the trip, Claude says, I can't take this moment-to-moment living on the streets. I know what I want to be. Invisible. As they look at the moon, Sheila and the others enjoy a light moment. The tribe pays tribute to an old mattress. Claude is left with his doubts. He leaves as the tribe enters, wrapped in blankets in the midst of a snowstorm. They start a protest chant and wonder where Claude has gone. Berger calls out, Claude! Claude! Claude enters dressed in a military uniform, his hair short. But they do not see him because he is an invisible spirit. Claude says, like it or not, they got me. Claude and everyone sing flesh failures. The tribe moves in front of Claude as Sheila and Dion take up the lyric. The whole tribe launches into Let the Sun Shine. And as they exit, they reveal Claude lying down center stage on a black cloth. During curtain call, the tribe reprises Let the Sun Shine In and brings audience members up on stage to dance. The The end. end. Please listen carefully. the parts we like and the parts we like and the parts we really liked and yes um <clears throat> this show is amazing absolutely wonderful fantastic 10 out of 10 would recommend yeah it the story just to start things off the story is fantastic you know i know that in that synopsis we just gave I think people are going to have to rewind and be like, okay, hold on a second. I need to, like, right, like I need what? a joint with the hallucinogen because what? But when you see it on stage, it really all does flow. Um, and uh, it it's brilliant. It's a brilliant, brilliant story, you know? Well, and what it, there's a lot of variance to the show. There's a lot of, um, I don't know how to describe it. There's a lot of feeling in the show. Um, and the story in the moment makes perfect sense as it's being laid before you. Yes. Um, but that's one of the struggles I had with putting together the synopsis for this episode was just, if you read it just on paper, it doesn't make any sense because it's meant to be an experience. Yes, and it's organic and it's, I mean, the fact that they're called a tribe literally describes how this this works. I mean... I'm surprised that there is a script to the show because it does feel just 
improv or just natural or mm-hmm. you know it doesn't feel like the show is rehearsed at all in the best way possible yes like it feels organic yeah it, it literally just feels like these guys got on stage and it, they're playing improv games where it's like these are your te- these are your goals and you have to figure out how to get there yeah you know um i love the message um of the show and it's as timely it was as timely then as it was when we saw the show and the message is even timely today which of course we'll get into later but the mm-hmm. message is like really really important you know when most people think of hair they think of the whole hippie free love da 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 da, da. and i'm like there's so much more to it though right you know quad is struggling with this whole identity crisis it's not just i want to be invisible like i don't want to be seen it's i'm he's he's stuck between two worlds right because he's stuck through you know i have this duty to my my country and i don't think it's a duty to his country i think it's his parents it's that genuine like i i think i honestly gonna throw my little passion in there with the west wing when they have the episode the big block of cheese day the second big block of cheese day and there's the protesters protesting the world bank mm-hmm. and toby gets sent to deal with the protesters and he you know calls them amateurs and everything because they had a hard time getting them but he calls them amateurs and he says you know back in my day we knew how to protest you know we we were we had the underground we had the weatherman da, 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 da. we'd show up we'd protest and allison jenny replies with him by god you were home by supper at sundown you know Claude is like Toby Ziegler in that he he is he's an activist, but he also has parents that love him. Where I think a lot of the other tribal members don't have that. Yes. So he's torn between this life of comfort, but then this life of angst. Right, and it he it's almost there's not nothing that says this, but it's almost like he has imposter syndrome, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, where he mm-hmm. feels like he belongs and he's the leader. That he realizes, oh, I don't belong because I have it so good. Right, exactly. And and in the end, his better angels, I guess. I don't know if I'd call them better angels, but his his sense of duty to his parents. Over, oh, oh, over when, the tribe. Yeah, and, 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 and he ends up serving and, of course, dying. Mm-hmm. You know, but um, yeah, so I think that's a really important message. Um. And it also goes into I the the race issue here. Oh yeah, is you know for the time using that platform to say those things to point out these things was really pivotal. You know, before Hamilton, boys and girls, there were show this show was showing our forefathers as people of color. Mm-hmm. You know, Abraham Lincoln as a black person or. Um, as a black George woman. Washington as a black yeah you know yeah. Um, and I think that's really important though and I think what they're saying also is really important and then of course you know uh, one of the numbers that stands out to me um, doesn't seem to have a lot of weight today but if you were to go back 50 years has huge weight would be black boys and white, white boys white. yeah because this is shortly after uh, integration happened and the whole idea of like legalization of, of, of integration. integration marriage. I can't think of the name of it, but you know, it was love versus, love, love one versus, anyway. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, the Supreme Court case that decided that. Um, 
you know, all of a sudden now on the Broadway stage, we have this, sh this song where you have different races singing about their love for different races. Mm -hmm. You know, and they're not just like any song. It is one of the most catchy songs in the whole freaking show. Oh my gosh, yeah! And this sh entire show it's, is catchy. Well, and what's great, what a little Easter egg there <clears throat> is, um, it's mimicked a little in Hairspray. Mm-hmm. When, um, or is it Hairspray, or am I thinking of where you've got the two, you've got the white girls and the black girls. Gazoontype. The white girls and the black girls doing the same song. Yeah, that's Hairspray. That's Hairspray? Yeah. They're doing the same... Yes, 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 yes. They're doing the same song, um, but different styles, and you totally have that right here. Gazoontype. Okay, you do it one more time. I don't have to bless you. <laughs> but you know, and, and so that's a little Easter egg 50 years later. But yeah, to, to, to be discussing these topics, oh my gosh... Right. Sexual. We already know the sexual openness. We already know the drug openness. All of that there. But these other topics are really profound, and it's a really po It's a very positive. It's not forcing it in your face. No. It's depicted in a positive way and in a positive atmosphere, and it's kind of like make your own decision. Well, and what I really like is just the way that the tribe interacts. Is literally they're like we are the melting pot. Like, New York City and America can't be the melting pot anymore, so we're going to be the melting pot. And they just fold everyone in. Uh, that, that's a good point, because I also love the cast interaction mm -hmm. with the audience. Yeah. That that was cool. That, that This was a first for me, is it, it the show literally came off the stage. Oh, yeah. Literally. Like, and they even came all the way up to the balcony. Yes, which, I mean, we'll get into in our stories. But, you know, the, the audience is as much part of the tribe... As the tribe itself, which mm -hmm. I think was brilliant. Let's let's break it down even a little bit more into boxes. So set. Okay. Again, we're talking about the revival. The set was very, very simple. And it's interesting as we were doing the research, um, I was reading one of the reasons why the set was really simple is because they were the public theater, who was the main financer for this. For the revival. For the revival, was having a hard time uh, raising the money to put the show on because this was during the the Great Recession. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that the director did uh, to help save money was she scaled back the set. And I remember it just basically looked like one giant loft. Yeah, it was like, like a tapestry. Well, it was like a, a giant brick wall in the back. And I remember like the band was on this like old broken down flatbed truck, like a farm truck, you remember? Like on the side. Uh-huh. And then they would just like bring in different things like the tapestry or whatever to change the set. They didn't have giant set pieces or whatever. It was very like heightened storytelling. Yeah. Um, you know, it reminded me of like a traveling vaudeville act. See, for me, it felt kind of like a circus tent. Or, yeah, 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 yeah. exactly, know. exactly. Like they, you didn't have this big ornate thing. It was just very simple. Like, you know, I, I can't think of a uh, Bedlam Theater Company, which is based here in New York, which is what my senior show was done in the style of. They basically go into a found space and they do theater, and you know they'll be like, "Well, this ladder is a tree, and you believe it's a tree," and they, mm -hmm. it's, it's heightened storytelling, and that's kind of what they were doing. Where they're like. Well, this quilt's a flag, but it's also a tree. Or not a tree. It's also um, a quilt. Or it could also be, uh, like you said, this tapestry for dawning of Aquarius. Or whatever, mm -hmm. you know. 
Um, but I liked it because it also just had the psychedelic feel. It had that. I felt like I was in someone's basement, honestly. It had that 70s show kind of feel to it. Yes. You know? um, and then leading into the costumes, it is exactly what you would think for the time, the way they were dressed. Mm-hmm. And what I liked is it was timely, but without looking dated. Yes. Well, what I really appreciated is they didn't go like, oh, we're going to do like fringe because that's what hippies were. It, they took images from the time and recreated them. They didn't. Yes. They didn't try to. Make it wasn't any... Halloweeny costume. Exactly. Yeah. Because not everyone needed to have bell bottoms. Not everyone needed to have, you know, vests and be, to be topless and stuff like that. They took a lot of different elements. They were street. I mean, I hate to say this term, but they were street people. So they, they took were, all yeah. these different looks of people from that time on the street. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and there was just the right amount of dirt with everyone without like. Looking dirty, if that makes sense. Yes, it was worn. like well, it was like I recognize that you're not showering very often. Exactly, you're dirty, but you're not like you could smell them without smelling them. Yes, and it wasn't like this is going to sound awful, but it was dirty by choice and not dirty by circumstance. Yes, no, and there was exactly a couple it. that were dirty by circumstance, but for the most part, everyone was dirty by choice. Yes, yes, no, that, that's perfectly put. And overall, just the general look between costumes and wigs and everything it was far out let's just put it that way i mean it was <laughs> the hair out, de- man the hair design of i mean everything was brilliant it was absolutely brilliant well one thing that i really remember is the lighting just all the colors felt psychedelic everything guided my focus where it needed to be and like i keep thinking of the trip and just the use of like gobos and things like that to create the effects of mm-hmm. going on a trip. And then also to light the audience as well for when they came out. It wasn't just like, we're going to raise the house lights. It was like, oh yeah, by the way, yeah, the house is part of the stage. So we're going to light you. It it reminds me of, you know, Moulin Rouge, to, to throw this in there. You know, Moulin Rouge is the entire theater is part of the stage. Mm-hmm. And so it too is lit. Mm-hmm. That's what it reminded me of because I remember yellows and blues. blues. Yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. I love the electric blues where everything just goes hard blue, you know. And then, of course, mm-hmm. when the power goes out and everything is now lit with flashlights, even the band, mm-hmm. even the band like has these flashlights and they're playing Manchester, England, England. You know, I thought that was so clever. Mm-hmm. You know, I, it, yeah, the lighting was really cool. It was, it was far out and psychedelic. Um, and when you've got limited sets and props and things to be able to help elevate that, you're doing your job. Right. No, that's exactly right, though. Um, I mean, I think it goes without saying also that this show, the music is just, I mean, it is an icon. But real quick, on, on the subject of music, everyone needs to go and look up Galt McDermott, what he looks like, both now and when he wrote the show, because... He gave an interview on Broadway, the American musical, and when he gives it, he's like, they were looking for someone that is like, funk, something funky and, and rock, and, and that's what I do. And like, you look at this guy and you're like, huh. <laughs> this guy? All right. And then you look at pictures from that time, and you even still then look at them and you're like, huh. <laughs> All right. <laughs> right. But this guy, this man created such. I mean, a memorable score. I mean, listening to Hair, you would have thought that Hendrix wrote it. 
Like, it's... I mean, yeah, some of the licks, definitely. But it's just... It is a huge reflection of the, the style and the music of the times. Several of these songs were in the Billboard, you know, top ten. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, if I'm thinking correctly, this was the last time a Broadway show was in the Billboard top ten. Until I, I, oh, well, well, pop, pop, like was being these songs were being played on the mainstream radio. You know, let the sun shine and good morning stars shine and dawning of Aquarius. These songs are being played. Age of on, Aquarius. Sorry, Age of Aquarius. These songs are being played on the radio. And although Rent is popular and Hamilton's popular, you're not going to put, you know... But they were playing Seasons of Love on the mainstream radio. I can't vouch for that. I wasn't... I was in New Mexico. I was in Tiny Town. (laughs) You know, nobody on KNFT was playing (laughs) Seasons of Love. But, you know, the music was just... it It was timely. It was hard to distinguish what was musical theater and what was, I'll say at the time, pop music. I think that's fair. Um, and something interesting, I think, about the show is the show is made up of, like, <clears throat> many small vignettes of songs. Like, there are very few long and epic songs that go on for several verses or even songs that are reprised. I think there's, I can think of, like, two that are reprised. Instead, it's, like, different poems or thoughts put to, to random songs. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, oh, I've got this random thought. Let's sing a song. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and if you think of all the other shows that led up to it up to that point that's not how musicals were done yeah and so it was really you know until then it was like I now have a reason to sing where in hair it was like I I feel a song coming on can I just sing about sodomy yeah, exactly <laughs> exactly that's exactly right though um it was an incredibly different and inventive like the music for the time um okay <laughs> It's rock and roll. <laughs> and even now it sounds inventive, like the revival. It is the first rock and roll musical. Yes. We can agree on this. Yes, it is the first rock and roll we... musical, especially because it premiered before Promises Promises. It is the first <laughs> rock and roll musical. And you can't help but get up and want to dance and free yourself to the beat of every song. Oh, I mean, yeah. It's, it's hair, you know. Um, the last little thing I want to mention is the choreography, particularly the survival. It was simple and it was perfect. Like, you know, you didn't have these big dance numbers where pirouette, pirouette, grandma, grandma, Martha Graham, Martha Graham. Um, No, but it felt more like coordinated blocking, I guess, as opposed to choreography. I don't know. It it just felt organic and natural. It just felt like it was blossoming from the group mind. Yes. Very tribal. You know, I don't know. I... Uh, the fact, I mean, it, I think it was nominated for, uh, for a choreography, Tony. I know there was a choreographer and I don't want to at all like take away from her, but I didn't see it as choreography. Do you know what I mean? Like it just, mm-hmm. it, it, it just was, it, it, I guess maybe, it, I don't know. It, it flowed so well with the storytelling that they were all the same thing. Yeah, like it didn't look, you know, when you see a dance number on a Broadway show, you're like, oh, that's a dance number. This is a dance number. They never looked like that. Like, they didn't have the big, you know, dawning of the age of Aquarius. Da 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 wah wah, jazz hands. You know, they didn't have any of that. It just, if they were dancing, I was just like, yeah, this is celebration, you know? Mm-hmm. I loved it. 
There have been several notable actors in the show, including Cassie Levy, Will Swenson, Annalie Ashford, and Gavin Crew. So, now let's talk about the impact this show has had on the theater and its history. Theatrical impact, number one. Why don't you take the first part? It was the first rock musical. You feel better about that now? Yes, thank you. Yes, this, is, this was the first rock musical um, on Broadway. And I think it's important to note that this brought the musical into the rock and roll era, first and foremost. And brought the musical into the amplified and electrified era. Yes. And those are two very important things because though every musical now, not necessarily rock and roll, I would not call Flying Over Sunset a rock and roll musical no. or Music Man a rock and no. roll musical. Every musical, every show, in fact, on Broadway is amplified. Yes. You know, mics are used on every show mm-hmm. in some form or the other, mm-hmm. whether it be floor mics, but all, I mean, even plays, they're mic'd. And this was very revolutionary. Um, Ethel Merman has got a great um, autobiography or biography. I can't remember which one it is. Um, And she mentions that she just, she did not like hair. She didn't want to go see hair. She didn't like it. And one of the things she didn't like about it, besides the subject matter, was the fact that they were using microphones. And she believed, like, if you can't sing over the band and you can't sing to the back of the theater, you have no business being on the stage. hmm Yeah, well. <laughs> Surprise. And Ethel Merman, like, she's a legend. And that's great that she, but that's, that doesn't work. And, and you counter that with someone who almost kind of, her career was almost in tandem character-wise, which would be Elaine Stritch, who, I don't, if I remember right, she wasn't necessarily, it wasn't that she didn't like hair, but I don't think she didn't she didn't love it she didn't hate it i believe mm-hmm. but also with miking she wasn't wholly against it but she really didn't like it as well mm-hmm. she preferred not to be but it, it, when she had to be she had to be you know this was a huge turning change into the guards oh yeah this like took everything that you possibly could know about musical theater and flipped it upside down turned it around backwards and you know, yeah. it it was just something that was so different. Um, and there were a lot of young people involved in the production. So no one had the the Broadway legacy or this like, you know. Right. There was no like, I've come from Broadway. I'm, yeah. Yeah. There was no, I come from Broadway. I know how this goes. Everyone was like, you know what? This is what we're doing. And yeah, that not, might not be the way that things are done on Broadway, but it's the way we're doing it. I think... And I gotta, I mean, look, friends out there, again, if you're looking for complete accuracy, you're listening to the wrong podcast. I believe Fiddler on the Roof opened prior to Hair, but that was kind of the last golden era musical. And as, you know, they all went to, left Anatevka, the... The golden era of musical theater, the sun went down on that as well, and then hair came in, and it was like a chapter that uh, we turn, we, we close the chapter on one part of musical theater, and we open the chapter on another, mm-hmm. and it would be this way until Rent, and it would be this way until In the Heights, and 
I mean, even Hamilton, I think, marks the next chapter of what, you know. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> so it's a huge, huge deal. Hair is like book two of the American musical, if you will. Right. Or book we... three, I guess, because I, I feel like Oklahoma would be book two. We had everything, but you know, from, from Ziegfeld Fallways to Oklahoma, and then Oklahoma to Hair. And anyway, we're going to write a whole series about the American musical. But <laughs> yeah, this, this, this had a huge footprint there. Right. Well, and it also brought to light, a, it basically said, these are all the issues. Here yeah, they are. Yeah, it they changed. Didn't, they didn't say, oh, well, we can only discuss one yes, thing or the other. Yes. We can, we're going to discuss all the things. Here you are. And we're not even going to discuss it. We're going to tell you that this is how we feel and have fun with it that. It tore up the, the rule book about it. Changed the game in regards to what the subject matter was able to be discussed on the stage. Or displayed as well. Yes. Drug use and all that stuff. Yeah, that wasn't being done. And then, you know, of course, nudity. It changed the game into what we could show on stage. You know, and, and the interaction with the well, audience Well, because also if you think about it, prior to this time, um, there were obscenity laws in New York City that yes. said that you couldn't ha- show... You know, certain, so much skin. Exactly, or... like X percentage, and you had shows like Oh Calcutta that had um, predated hair that were like, oh, you can't do nudity and all this other stuff, and so finally, hair was like, but why not? What are you gonna do? We're naked. Oh, come at, <laughs> come after it, you know? Yeah. And they're doing drugs on stage. I don't. I'm well. I can't speak of back then, but I'm, I know now they weren't really doing drugs. Right. But, you know, and, and interacting with the audience. And that was a huge deal. Like, you know, not just like standing on the stage and looking at the audience and talking to them. Like going out into the audience, handing them flowers, touching their hair. What That was huge, mm-hmm. you know. And the last thing I'm going to mention, I think, in my opinion, this is the most important thing theatrically the show did. Besides rock and roll musicals, blah, blah, blah. Is it elevated and brought attention to Joseph Papp and the public theater? Because if there's, I mean, it's got to be one of the largest influencer on Broadway now. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's kind of an incomplete thought, but I was having this discussion with someone I saw a show with last night. A lot of shows, you know, now do out-of-town trials, but there's also a lot of shows that start off-Broadway. Off-Broadway's a great place to see shows. And then they come to Broadway, you know. And the public is one of those places where a lot of shows will start, gain a lot of momentum, and come to Broadway. And I can think of a few off the top of my head. Hamilton. Fun home. I mean, a chorus line. A chorus line. And then, of course, hair. The public has been cranking out these great, incredible shows. And this was the first one. And all of a sudden, people, the public is a, a nonprofit theater. Mm-hmm. And that it was the first time that, like, you know, someone looked and they went, oh, yeah, we should probably take care of these things. We should probably make sure that there's art not just for profit, but for because a, 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 because a needs society needs art. Yes. Yeah. You know, I mean, one thing we discussed when we were in college is, you know, fun fact for all of you kids out there. The United States is the only developed civilization that does not have a national theater. Mm-hmm. We do not have a national theater. Mm-hmm. The Kennedy Center is not our national theater. There's no such thing as like the U.S. National Theater. It doesn't exist. We have the National Endowment for the Arts, but we do not have a national theater. Why don't we have a national theater? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's one of those things where 
as much as we say like we value art and that, it's kind of like, but do we do we value art or do we value art if it produces money? And Joseph Papp was a huge, huge proponent of art shouldn't be measured by how much money it makes, but by like what it can do to a person, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And so this show really made put people onto the existence of the public and what it does. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> Let's go on to societal impact. Okay, I want to say this. Because I always say it? Yes, but this really is the first time it happened. Rude. This is the first time, really significantly. Okay, I'll take that. That brought a whole new generation to the theater. Absolutely. This legitimately said, take your Camelot, shove it up your arsehole, and... You just upset my mother with that. <laughs> Apologize but you know to what my I mother. mean? Like it's so <laughs> like, listen, we're not Camelot, we're not My Fair Lady, well, we're not Oklahoma. It finally gave a show for a younger generation because, like, yeah, I don't know. I don't want to say Broadway wasn't for a younger generation prior to this, but I, I in my mind, like, you would. You have to have money and be of a certain age. Or to your enjoy grandparents it. took you, or you were going out as like adults dating or something like that. This was more like now, if you were a teenager. Or a college student, like, you wanted to go to the theater and participate. The other thing that it did in regards to that is it spanned the gap between generations. Right, well, because you have, in the actual show, you have Claude trying to show his parents that he is passionate and this is my his vitality, and he's reaching out to them saying, I, this is what I care about and this is what I, you know, and so you have your people who have always gone to the theater, so they go to the theater and they have, you know, this character telling them this information and being like, listen, I've got life and I have my hair and I am excited to be here. And it was trying to appeal to the older generation who was like, who are these hippie well, slobs? That's exactly and it. And it's like, no, 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 there's a reason. There's a method behind the madness. They were seeing the, this lifestyle, these people in their everyday life and on their TV and on the news and that. And a lot of these older generation didn't understand. This was at this, in this time, particularly with like the Vietnam war, this is the first war that had massive opposition, mm-hmm. massive opposition, huge protests and sit-ins and all that. Mm-hmm. This was one of, if not the most unpopular war we've ever fought. Right. Well, and, and also at this time, there was a lot uh, more graphic uh, imagery right, well, coming and, out of it. Well, and also you had the advent of television and everything. So things were happening a lot faster. But the thing is, is this generation, this older generation who had lived through at, and least, participated. At, at least one world war, and of course the Korean War, were trying to understand this younger generation. How can you be so, it's unpatriotic and I don't understand. And why are you growing your hair out? Why are you doing this? And it doesn't make sense. And this show was allowing both of them to sit down and these kids to really get an excitement out of that's me up on stage, but then also to their parents or their grandparents to go, this is what it's about. Take it out of context of being demonized by the news and everything. Let me explain it to you. Right, like from the horse's mouth. Right, because, you know, that lifestyle wasn't all, you know, 
uh, Helter Skelter yeah. and, and all the, you know, because of course that was also during the time of, of what am I thinking of? The, the Devil Scare. The Satanic Panic? The no, sat- the Satanic Panic would come around in the 80s. Well, but 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 this but, similar, but you know, like, oh, it's corrupting our youth and rock and roll is of the devil. And, you know, all that kind of stuff has happened, uh, has happened and it's kind of still the mindset. And they're just saying it's really harmless. Honestly, the worst thing we do is... We could shower more. Well, and we, the drugs were a little bit much. And of course, hindsight's twenty twenty. The free love probably led to a lot of STIs. Yes. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty. But nobody was getting hurt, hurt by this movement. And so that's with an asterisk. I mean, we don't know. I mean, also, I mean, yeah, like with an asterisk, let's talk about the character of Jeannie, who she says she was, you know, the she was knocked, the one knocked up. up by a speed freak. But if you know anything about the history of drugs and the way that they progressed through the United States, really most drug users were not very violent until the advent of speed because speed inherently makes brings out the more uh, violence and adrenaline yes. and whatnot. And so what Jeannie's really saying is she was raped. Yeah. And she's having to rape his baby. But you know what I mean? Like, that's, the, yeah. that's a tangent. That's a different podcast. But, you know, this, this show was innovative in that fa- whole families could go to it and get something different but understand things and then leave and be like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I've already mentioned that it created several hits on the Billboard Top 10. We've covered that. It puts social and political issues front and center, which is really, really important. A lot of sh- Broadway shows kind of have dabbled like kind of sort of put it there, but not, I mean like Rogers and Hammerstein kind of put it there in South Pacific with, you've got to be taught, mm-hmm. you know, but it, it was, it was kind of like side eyed where it's like, you know, we're saying this, but we're not saying this, but we are saying this. And yes, it was, this show was like, you know what? We're not going to nuances. Get out of here. We're just going to say this, you know? And so that was really important. It introduced a whole new audience to the public and to the public theater, excuse me, and to Off-Broadway. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people saw Off-Broadway as just like the the beatnik, the really artsy kind of thing. And it was like, Off-Broadway could be for you too. You know, as Neil Patrick Harris famously said once upon a time, it's not just for gays anymore. You know, <laughs> like you can go down to the New World Sages. Well, that didn't exist at that time. You know, you can, you can go down to the... Uh, Lucille Lordle Theater or the Borrow Street Theater and you could go see a show and it, it's okay. Go see the Divine Miss M a few decades later, you know. Um, and I also think that with this show, it gave a voice to a new group of people, to a new form of artist. Yes. I love what Ben Vereen says um, in Broadway the American Musical when they talk about the audition process, which was like unlike any audition process before because it wasn't just hi my name is and i will be singing and you do your bars and you go they were doing like full-on like trust exercises and mm-hmm. all sorts of just you know getting to know you thing like improv stuff you know to really bond as a as a cast just, and that was the audition process but when the audition notice went up for the broadway production or maybe it was just the regular production but every hippie and panther and activist and you know everyone was lining up to audition 
Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just, you know, I'm an actor. It was activists. It was these actual people were like, wait, they're doing a show about what I do? I can do that. I do that every day. Mm-hmm. I can use it as a platform. Um, which is also, um, I know we made a brief note on it, but there really was a lot of confusion at the at the public because there was construction and it was like people would just kind of wander in and you'd be like, yeah, you're part of the cast. And then it's right, like, Right, oh, because no. they didn't look like a typical actor. Mm-hmm. It was like, I don't think you're supposed to be here. And it's like, no, dude, I'm I'm in the show. Yes. <laughs> and this is before, like, like, you who's working on a Broadway show, you have a badge. Yes. So that people can identify you as someone who's in the cast. Because otherwise they'd be like, excuse me, the M&M store is actually around the corner. I think you're confused. You're right. You know, you know. Or I feel bad for some of those younger looking teachers. It's like, where's your hall pass? I work here. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I love that this brought a new artist to the stage. And it gave the voice to those people. We didn't just have to hear Moon and June and the same kind of... It was like, no. Maybe we should hear from that group in the back that's been raising their hand for so long. Mm-hmm. Well, and to tie it back to the 2009 revival version that we talked about, is it it revitalized that basic young artist mentality to come Listen back to, to Broadway. Listen to that younger generation, bring in that younger, bring mm-hmm. in that young blood, you know? Right, because we had started moving away from it a little bit. Yeah. And we were like, you know what? No, we need... We need that youthfulness. We need that. We need art that speaks across the generations. Well, and it's really interesting because when the revival came out, we were um, on the edge of the on. Uh, well, this was like when we had like Zuccotti Park. Well, no, no, we and... were we were. Uh, this is the beginning of the Obama presidency, so we were coming off of the Bush presidency, uh, where there was another very very unpopular war. Mm-hmm. So we're coming off of that and a lot of people who were saying that they didn't like that um, and we get the show again. I just and, and you were right, the Zuccotti Park thing, the 1%, you just all of a sudden you start seeing a younger generation start to get angry and angsty and the show reemerges. And I don't think that was by happenstance. And I would not be surprised. Leading into the next thing, is the show still relevant? Yes. 100%. Would... Absolutely. Is there anything more relevant? I wouldn't be surprised if, if that revival sneaks up in the next year or two. Because I see a whole other younger generation that's upset and angsty and, and kind of up in arms about a lot of things. From systematic racism to climate change to... You know, not taking things like that pandemic seriously. Yes. You know, to overwhelming debt from college loans and things. You know, something tells me Harry's about to make a revival to remind them, yes, if you do things simply, you can, or, and peacefully and in a loving way, you can be very successful. Um, I think the values and ideas that are discussed and recognized in the show still exist in our society. Oh, yeah. A social revolution is still in our midst and is rising nonetheless. So, and I think the show helps to rally people behind a cause. Yeah, well, it's like, you know, they use the word tribe, and I understand the problem of referring to whatever, but without going into that part of, you know, that conversation, the idea of calling it a tribe because anyone can join in and encourage and 
everyone of everywhere to join to create this found family concept. Yeah. Um, is just really strong and it, it encourages people to join the tribe, to join the group, to be like, you know what, I align myself with this idea of, you know, social justice and I'm going to join. I'm yes. going to be in. It's inclusive as a... As opposed to exclusive. Exactly. In fact, I never, I, in the entire show, I don't think they ever exclude or make a movement of ex- exclusion. It's always inclusion. As promised, we wanted to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing the show. So we've seen the, we saw the show once back in 2010. Um, and I mean we've we've covered a lot of our experiences, but um, I thought it was an absolutely amazing show. Oh you God, know. this show like spoke to my soul. Um, it it was a show I didn't know I needed to see. Until I, like, I saw the Tonys and I was like, oh yeah, I kind of want to see that. And then once I got there, I was obsessed and I went through a whole, like, hair phase. And then my, uh, the university we went to went through, like, they did. did, They did that show that was the first show for the, uh, MTP. MTP. Oh, it was the second show. Mm -hmm. But, like, it really just, like, spoke to me, um, on so many different levels. Um, I thought it was really cool to see and meet Will Swenson yes. because he is from Utah, that Utah connection. Mm-hmm. Um, so for those of you who don't know, Will Swenson's from Utah. His parents... Um, is he from Utah? I know his family... He is fam- from Provo, Utah. Okay, because I know his family um, is part of Hale Theater Orem. Yes, they were the... the his parents are the Hales. Um, and... Uh, or his, yeah, his parents or his grandparents are the Hales. But he's from Provo, Utah. Served a mission. He went to BYU. Don't go Cougars. We don't like the Cougars. They don't. Uh, but he's no longer LDS. But he, yeah. He's now married to Audrey McDonald. Oh, yeah. I, I, I did my homework before Audrey. I threw that in. Um, I, I, I checked out on his profile. And, um, yeah, go Utes. Go Utah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, yeah, but building up of what you're saying, I thought this... The, I was profoundly moved and changed by the show. Oh, yeah. Well, and I remember them coming out to us in the audience and handing us the Be In Flyer and The flowers. Daisy. Yeah, as I said, the Daisy yes. that we kept. And they, even though we were up in the balcony when we walked down, they let us walk down and go up on the stage and around the stage. And yep. It was um, just really cool. This show, to me, was like your, your musical theater awakening. Like, it wasn't your first show, but this was the one that, like, reached down and sowed a seed in your soul and you were like, I have to have this forever and always in my blood. Like, th- this was the show for you, mm-hmm. you know? Um, for me, that was West Side Story. That was the show that the minute I saw that, I was like, I, I want nothing else. I-, I have to do this every day of my life. Mm-hmm. This, I think, for you was like, you know. Mm-hmm. you. I think before this, you liked theater and you're like, yeah, this is fun, this is great. But then when you saw Harry, you were like, Mm-hmm. I want to be. A, I could run the show forever. 
where are y'all going? I'm going to get in the van. I'm following around the world, you know? <laughs> right. Uh, and like I said, meeting the cast afterwards was amazing. You know, Cassie Levy and Gavin Creel were amazing. Um, so it was great. Yeah. I I love the show. It was, I wish oh, we could have seen it again. Same. This and is then, one of, of course, my all-time favorite talks. Seeing it in the summer, it was oh, so much fun. As um, the theater continues to open up, as the world, God, I hope, continues to return to normal, um, we look forward to seeing the show again. You'll be able to catch hair at probably a college near you, um, but hopefully somewhere. Somewhere, please do hair. <laughs> we would also like to give you, to continue to update you on the goings on here on Broadway. 76 trombones are leading the big parade at the Winter Garden Theater, where Music Man begins its previews on December 20th. Hey, I think you're a part of that, ain't ya? I am. Yay! We, we, I'm going to take this moment to brag and congratulate my co-host over there. She's making her full Broadway debut uh, on the Music Man, so we are really proud of her doing that, so congrats to you. Thank you. Check out Felissa Rashad at the Samuel Friedman Theater in MTC's production of Skeleton Crew. Uh, they begin, sorry, on December 21st. You can hear more about these shows and others that we've already seen in our bi-weekly podcast, The Broadway Bulletin, every Tuesday and Saturday. So, until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hope Bird. Reminding you to turn off your cell phones. Unwrap your candies and keep your mask on. Please. And, yeah. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at StageWhisperPod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Fox by Music for Wildlife. Other music on this episode provided by Benji Menji, Jazzar, Music for Wildlife, and Billy Murray. That's where I long to be With a friend so dear